Hi, this is Dave Vanderveen, and you're listening to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. This is uh, Season 1, Episode 4, and it's really all about how I started breaking through barriers in my own life. If you're not familiar with the Kick Aspirational Podcast, uh, this podcast is based on a series of questions I've gotten, um, literally thousands of questions uh, from people asking me how I created the life that I have, how I built the brands that I have, built Access, the energy drink brand that I built. Um, and, and create a lifestyle where I get to travel the world and have adventures with fun people that we work with and, uh, and you know, obviously do fairly well financially. Um, it's designed to be interactive. I want your feedback, your questions, your comments. I'd eventually like to do workshops where we work through projects you're working on and help you break through barriers. Maybe the project is you. <laughs> Maybe it's me. <laughs> it's always been me in my life. But it's all about living deliberately and intentionally and sharing value with other people. And then, you know, really focusing on are the things that I'm doing taking me in the direction that I want? Is it allowing me to create a life that I really want to live where I wouldn't change anything? Um, in the last episode, I started digging into the origins of why I've wanted to create my own life and not always been terribly conforming. Um, I'd like to go back to the question that my college friend Steve Snezek sent me. And I'll just kind of break it down really simply. He said he wanted to make some changes in his life in 2014, and he said, simply put, how do you do it? What's your secret? Is there something in your daily practice that you know has given you an edge? What do you pray about? How do you know when you've got an answer? And that is the right answer. <laughs> and what advice would you have for somebody looking to make something happen in their life? What should I do in the form of a daily routine that will change my fortunes, my luck? Um, you know, in the, the last episode, uh, or the one before we started, I did an authentic brand episode, so it was the second um, episode, I, I talked about the failures in my own life, getting kicked out of college in a very public way, how I leveraged those failures to leapfrog forward, how I got control of my own story, how important that was, creating a narrative for your life that's your narrative and not something that somebody else is saying about you. And I also talked about graduating into a recession in 1991, um, but you know, not worrying or not letting the problems in the country I was born in hold me back finding opportunities in another place, in Japan, and, and leaping into that, which still, because Japan still had a robust economy, um, and I could make very good money there teaching English and editing, uh, and editing English for a, for a, some a French, French marketing company there. But, um, so that's a little bit about my story, and ultimately, then I came back to the U.S. and I took a job at a small think tank uh, as a director of public affairs at the Acton Institute, um, but I was realizing that I needed to do more, that it, this wasn't what I was, what I felt like I was, I was made to do, what I was born to do. So, um, so I jumped at the chance to work on the term limits movement. Uh, term limits was this whole movement to limit how long people could be in office, uh, particularly in the legislature, in the legislature, the legislative division of the United States government, uh, in state and federal legislative offices. And, um, so, uh, Anyways, this allowed me to start my first uh, my first company, a public affairs company, that was doing uh, basically, um, you know, basically helping uh, helping to book radio and earn media, get stories on the on the radio at the time. That's where I basically started my first project, and expanded into allowing me to do um, to do a lot more. But I also skipped over a bit uh, a small and early crisis in my life uh, when I realized I didn't want to work in think tanks anymore and I needed to jump into something new. 
So I was working in West Michigan. I was very young. I was in my, I was probably 23, 22, 23. I was the first director of public affairs at the small think tank. And um, I started looking around for other opportunities. One of my friends, uh, Amy Berwick, she uses the pen name Amy Plum, lives in Paris today still, uh, helped me get a job to interview for the OECD, the Organization, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development in Paris. Um, my wife now, who was my girlfriend then, Sarah, I love that because she had studied the Sorbonne in Paris uh, for a semester and I really enjoyed living in Paris and we thought it would be interesting to go back if we could. Um, and, uh, and then I was also, I'd also uh, gotten an interview with another think tank, the Foundation for Economic Education, or called FEE, up in, up in upstate New York. I'd done a little writing for them. And, um, and, and I was kind of looking around at what the different opportunities were. Uh, you know, I was helping my wife, uh, who's then my girlfriend, move back to Boston to her parents' home just after she had graduated from Calvin College. And uh, I was planning on doing an interview at FEE up in upstate New York, and then I was going to do an interview for the OECD uh, uh, in Washington, D.C., not in Paris, <laughs> where they have an office. And um, when I was visiting FEE's kind of magnificent but threadbare estate in Irvington-on-Hudson, New York, upstate New York, I interviewed with their, um, the head of their, their, their uh, think tank, Hans Senholtz, who at the time was... Uh, a very famous Austrian economist, and uh, or at least among economists, and um, and running that that think tank, and um, you know it was kind of interesting because uh, going through this process, uh, I realized that at Fee, for example, you know Hans was was probably towards the end of his career. He was confused whether I was there for for an interview or whether I was starting. The staff there were were you know getting older, um, and and even though the think tank was very highly esteemed and the, you know, their estate was magnificent and they had a great publication called The Freeman, I really started thinking like, you know, is this, is this team going to help a young guy like me go to the next level? Is this, is this team going to be, you know, and, and maybe they were, maybe they, that would have been a great opportunity for me, but it just didn't feel like it at the time. And then um, en route to D.C. to sit with the OECD and do an interview, I got in a car accident in my parents' van. And so while I was sitting in a, in a cheap motel in um, somewhere in New York waiting for this van to get repaired, I started kind of freaking out, like, what am I doing with my life? Where do I want to go? Is this really what I want? And, and you know, I started saying, like, why do I even think I have to go into political work full time? You know, just because you, I'd studied political science, is that why? Was that really the life I wanted? And I think a lot of us, you know, can get trapped when we invest in a big education, study a particular field that we, frankly, kind of decide on a whim when we're in college, and then try and build a career out of it. Um, that doesn't, just because you put all that work and investment in doesn't mean that's how you have to spend the rest of your life. And, and the funny thing is my dad had been really helpful with this earlier. And I think this is part of why I was even asking the questions. Um, you know, my dad was a doctor and he had helped my older brother and I think about this in approaching our own careers, uh, you know, he would point out that, you know, um, some of our more successful relatives owned their own businesses. His own, both of his grandfathers owned their own businesses. They had immigrated from the Netherlands. Uh, we had various aunts and uncles who owned their own businesses and had, you know, a variety of levels of success, but they all controlled their own lives more. They had con more control of their time. 
and um, you know they got to make the decisions in their life and and that was something that was kind of ingrained into me um, he also sort of talked us out of becoming doctors you know because my father had a private practice in the 70s and the 80s it wasn't unusual for us to tag along with him uh, on some of his weekend visits to patients or after hours office visits you know we and we kind of help out a little bit um, so when I was, and we enjoyed that, I worked as a, as a, I worked in the lab at the hospital when I was in high school. I mean, I really enjoyed um, the idea of medicine, of helping somebody heal, you know, helping somebody's body heal itself, as my dad likes to say, uh, the work of a doctor is. We, we don't heal people, we help people, you know, heal themselves. And um, so at one point, we were visiting Johns Hopkins, where he'd gone to medical school, and my, I was in fifth grade. My brother was in probably seventh grade. He was going to walk us into the observation room, which is kind of a, a room where students can watch a surgery. Uh, it has a glass, kind of a big glass window in the floor that you can look down on the surgical center and um, or the surgery center, whatever they call it, where, where they're doing surgery. <laughs> but uh, that was locked. And so we had to, my dad went, took us down to um, the prep area for the, for the surgery to see if somebody could open the, the room and the nurse, or the head nurse for the surgery uh, area still remembered him from when he was in medical school. And she said, well, why don't you just have the boys scrub up and put paper scrubs on and walk on the floor? So literally in fifth grade, we got to walk down and see a radical neck surgery where they eviscerate somebody. You know, they, they kind of cut you above your jawline and down along your neckline. And then they open up your entire neck. This was to get a, some cancer out of a, a somebody's neck. Um, under the jawbone and, and some lymph nodes in the neck. But this was, you know, this, I really enjoyed watching that. Um, in fact, they used a giggly saw, uh, which looks like a long metal string with two rings on it. The, the long metal string is actually a serrated saw blade. They put that under the jawbone and, and then you hook your fingers in and you pull it back and forth. And as you pull it back and forth, it goes, it almost sounds like the saw is giggling, hence the term giggly saw. But um, I absolutely loved the work. I thought it was really cool. And, and my dad made a point of clarifying for us that the ability for us to create the lifestyle or the life that he had been able to create, a house on a lake, successful private practice, owning his own business in essence, was all sort of going away, that, that, his, that medicine wasn't trending in that direction. And that by the time we probably graduated from medical school, the money probably wouldn't be there anymore. It was getting, you know, medicine's getting more and more expensive, but all that money is going to pay for insurance companies and larger government bureaucracies, um, and 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 he was right. You know, it, he said basically, you know, if you want to be a doctor, be a doctor for being a doctor's sake. Don't do it for money. Don't do it for income. Don't do it for these other things. Um, and and you know, you wouldn't be able to expect this lifestyle even after a dozen years or more of medical school post college. So that was a big consideration. Um, and then he did the same thing again. So I studied philosophy and political science, which is actually a good way to set yourself up to go to law school. Um, and I did well on my LSATs, the, 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 the test you take to get into a law, a law school. I had decent enough grades. I could have not, you know, I wouldn't have gotten into an Ivy League law school, but I could have gotten into um, to a very good law school. And um, before I actually uh, decided to go to law school or not go to law school, my dad said, let's go interview um, some different people in the law profession. And, and I would ask questions about what they did. So we interviewed like some corporate attorneys, some, uh, some nonprofit attorneys, some, uh, I have a cousin who's a judge. And I would ask them questions about what they did and their work. And they would tell me the impressive things they did every day. And it was very interesting. 
And it's some very important work. I don't want to take anything away from them. But my dad also asked them about their life. And he said, you know, how many hours a week do you work? And how many, how many, how many weeks a year do you get to take vacation? And, you know, do you wish you were home more? And he, you know, he would have been very proud of me as an attorney, but he also um, wanted me to, I think, make sure that when I was getting into something, it wasn't just for the prestige or the hourly rate, but it was also for the life that you're trying to create. And, um, you know, kind of getting to a kind of a happiness quotient per se. And, and I think also pointing out that the, you know, if you're in a business where you're selling your hours, where you're in billable hours, it can be great and you can make a lot of money, but it also means you have to sell your hours. And, and that's something to take into consideration. It may be the right thing to do. It doesn't mean it's the wrong thing, but it also means it has its own sets of limitations. So, um, I was driving back across New York State with a fixed van and, and you know, I hadn't even made the interview at the OECD, hadn't even gotten there, trying to figure out what I was going to do and sort of deciding that maybe think tank, the whole think tank route, um, you know, working with scholars about around big ideas was kind of over. I just didn't see myself, you know, doing more of that in administrative, you know, capacities. And so I started to ask myself, what did I really want to do? And... Um, and so I, I think it's important to start by seriously asking yourself that question. And I'd get out a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil and start writing down, you know, make a T-chart. Here's what I do today. Here's what I love about that. And here's what I wish I could do. Here's how I wish I could take the things that I love doing and the things that I think I'm good at and the things where I think I can make money and start doing more of that, start making incremental adjustments and changes towards the life I really want. Um, you know, and so I started reaching out to um, some of the people that I, uh, that I knew, some of the people I knew from school who were doing different things uh, in the direction that I wanted to go. And by the way, I was also thinking about, hey, I'm in love with this, with this you know, woman uh, that I'd met my wife or my girlfriend at the time, Sarah. I just helped her move to her parents' house. I was thinking, hey, maybe we want to, you know, we probably want to have a life together. We want to have a family eventually. So how do I create, you know, a world where where I can maximize that too? And um, and so I started knocking on doors, calling up friends, seeing what they were doing, just interviewing them, and then you know thinking if there was places where I could add value to that. Um, and and uh, you know, and really digging into the idea of is, you know, if I were doing those types of things, would that be bringing me in a direction where I was going to be happy, where I was going to be, um, again, building a life I wanted. And uh, I had a bunch of friends from Wheaton who were living in the Napa Valley. Um, that was Jim Newdall, Andy Blue, Christoph Anderson. Actually, Christoph wasn't there yet. He came just after I did. In fact, I just interviewed Christoph and his wife last weekend, his wife Jennifer, uh, when we were back in the Napa Valley. Uh, my wife and I were just there for our 25th anniversary. Uh, Christoph came to the Napa Valley just after I did. He and I were at Wheaton College together our freshman year, uh, all the way through until I left and he finished. But um, he and his wife had become a successful writer and a very successful winemaker. And so I interviewed them, kind of how they broke, broke through barriers and got where they were in life. There'll be a, a future episode. But, um, you know, I had all these friends in the Napa Valley. I bumped into one of them, Mark Wickland, who was living with his uh, partner uh, slash wife, Amy Ball, in, uh, in St. Helena, working at a small beverage alcohol laboratory, ETS Laboratories. 
And I was talking to him at this wedding, telling him that I was kind of looking at different opportunities, wasn't sure what I wanted to do, told him about some of the things I'd been doing. And he said, well, you know, my, my, um, I think they're, I think they were married at the time. He said, well, you know, my wife and I are thinking, Amy and I are thinking about leaving where we're working. Maybe you'd like to talk to the owner. And he said, you know, they're, it's a technical service for the wine industry. Uh, they want to do an economics based marketing program. And the owner is a very free market, uh, slash libertarian, uh, you know, personality, you guys might hit it off well. And so Mark introduced us. I got together with Gordon Burns on the phone and via my, my resume and some of my writing samples. And he liked it that I had done some writing for Acton and for the, for the Foundation for Economic Education for their publication, The Freeman. And, um, and so he offered me an opportunity. And it was, it was a great chance for me to connect with a businessman who would help mentor me and give me some space to fail a little bit and move forward um, in addition to uh, the new work that I was doing. Uh, at the same time, you know, I think I'd mentioned uh, Chris Mowern, who was the executive director at Acton, the Acton Institute, had introduced me to Howie Rich, who was one of our donors. And Howie, you know, gave me this opportunity to work with Eric O'Keefe in Spring Green, Wisconsin, doing political work, working on the term limits movement which allowed me to start my first company, Vanderveen Public Affairs. Um, the problem is political work seasonal, so I needed to add a component to it. I needed to get into business as well that you know was more full-time. And adding ETS Labs as a client, uh, helping them with their marketing campaigns and programs, allowed me to not only expand my client base, uh, but also expand my work from not just public affairs work, but also into marketing and public affairs and really start to learn a lot more about the business side of communications and marketing and, uh, and, and, and expand my horizons. And so, you know, I think really, really simply, um, you know, the, the, the fact that I had this background in free market economics, had worked with the, the Freeman, that I met a guy named, you know, Gordon Burns through a friend from school, all allowed me to jump into the economics of wine analysis, um, allowed me to move into business, and then having mentors, you know, and this leads me to questions maybe for the listener, like, who do you have that are mentors in your life right now that are stretching you and helping you become a bigger, better person, that are helping you move in the direction you want to get? You know, one, I think you have to kind of understand where are you, where do you want to go towards, and then two, who is going to help you get there? And again, keep that pen and paper out take notes, write down names of people you know today or people who can help introduce you to people that might be interested in that. And then I would take the time, I know it's a stretch and it probably scares you, but call some of these people. Tell them what you're trying to do. Ask them if they would be willing to sit and interview with you where you can ask them questions about their work and how they got where they're going and see if maybe they would be willing to give you some advice or mentor you a little bit or coach you and help you move forward in your career path. And that allowed me to move out to California, which had been another goal of mine. I got to move to the Napa Valley, which is a place that has a lot of very successful people, people who've largely been successful in other industries and businesses uh, and have been you know, financially successful enough to invest in a winery or a wine business. Uh, one of the one of the jokes is the way you make a little bit of money in the wine industry is you start with a lot, um, and so it, it got me around an association. You know, there's small towns, an association of people who are more successful, and it also allowed me to to eventually meet Scott Kuhn, who uh, who I'll talk about more later, uh, maybe in the next episode. I'll I'll talk about how I met him on a flight to visit 
some of our winery clients in the in the Seattle area. But um, what uh, what I'd like to leave you with today is this simple idea that many of us have been raised with this mantra that we have to go to school and study in an area and then take that area and apply it to a career and then follow that career path through and there's only one way to do it and you can't bounce around and you can't look at other things you've got to just stay focused and just follow that path and in my experience that's not how success happens that's not actually how you build the life you want that's how you build a life for somebody else and it can be very financially rewarding and you can build a great career but is that really what you want? Is that really what's going to give you the freedom and the actualization in your life that you're looking for? Take some time and think about that. Break it down. What are you doing? Is it really what you want in life? And if it is, great. But if it's not, if you're putting too much time and if you're not seeing your family as much, if you're not creating a world where you're not only being actualized and progressing, but it's costing you too much with the people you love the most, I'd encourage you to check yourself a little bit and think about either ways you could be more selective or you could cut back or you could shift gears. You could change direction. You could find some people who will help you. That's in my podcast today. I'm up on the north coast of California in Guadalajara, California. Uh, I'm at the Sea Ranch with my family. We just, My wife and I just celebrated our 25th year of marriage. And uh, we had a wonderful celebration in the Napa Valley at Scribe Winery with, among other friends, Christoph and Jen Anderson, who we've known for a long time. A lot of friends from around the world, from Korea, Japan, uh, Europe, the Americas, all over the place. It's a wonderful event. I hope you have the same success in your life, where all of your friends you've known for decades come to celebrate it with you when you have such a big milestone. And I hope you take the time to, uh, to think about what you're doing and to start being more deliberate and more intentional with your time and your focus and your efforts and your energy and your investments. And you share your thoughts because I think us communicating, creating communities where we can push each other is where we're going to find the most fulfillment and where we go. Thank you very much. Have a great week. Be kick aspirational and share your experiences with me. Either you can hit me up at, uh, david at kickaspirational.com you can hit me you can dm me on social media on uh, kick aspirational uh at sign kick aspirational on instagram or david vanderveen on facebook or you can also hit me at david d-a-v-e-e-d 58 david 58 on instagram as well love to hear your comments thoughts feedback and um keep moving this ball forward thank you